We are engaged in a study entitled The Fundamentals of Forgiveness. This is our sixth visit to this topic from the Scriptures. And the forgiveness that we're looking at and what we are aiming toward and will eventually get to is the forgiveness of sin by God. How that is made possible through Christ. But first, so far, we've only made it to the first major heading, which we have entitled, The Essence of Forgiveness. What is at the heart of forgiveness? Why is forgiveness necessary? And this is what we saw under the what we call the source for our need of forgiveness. And the source for our need for forgiveness is our sin. Your sin. My sin. Since the fall of man in the garden, we're all sinners. And it is what we find Jesus doing even in the Gospels. Going around and telling men and women, your sins are forgiven. It's what we need. It's what every man needs. More than money, more than wealth, more than health. As Jesus spoke to that man that was lying on a pallet, completely crippled and paralyzed. He didn't say first, oh, well, you need health. He said, your sins are forgiven. We need to have our sins cleansed. And now we are engaged in a pursuit of understanding what is sin. All right, if we need to have sins forgiven, what is sin? There are many people who would sternly deny that they are even sinners. You know, I know there's a lot of bad people, but I'm really pretty good. I'm a nice guy. I treat people well. I have a neighbor who thinks she's going to heaven because she's constantly going around helping people, caring people, doing good works for people. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. So people think that because they're good, they're going to go to heaven. And they're not sinners. That's the other guy. But as we saw from 1 John 3, 4, the definition of sin is it is lawlessness, a breaking of the law of God. The Ten Commandments. And every one of you and every one here on the face of the earth has committed acts of sin against God as they have broken the Ten Commandments more than once. More than once a day. So when you stand before God, you will not have an excuse and be able to say, well, I was a good guy. No, you weren't. You broke my law constantly. The first definition we saw then Sin is lawlessness. And then we went on to see secondly from James, the, God, the epistle of James, that sin is doing the wrong thing. When you know to do the right thing and don't do it, it is sin. And that was in the context of the church. 
And we made application to ourselves that we don't want to be a divided church in any way. You know the right thing to do. Do the right thing. And then last Lord's Day, we began a look at Romans chapter 14. And I invite you to turn there with me again in your Bibles. Romans chapter 14. And I ask you to please look down to the very last verse of the chapter. So if you go to chapter 15, you'll be right there. Paul says to the church there in Rome, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And here's the verse, or here's the portion of the text. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, we mentioned last Lord's Day that this comes in the context of some here in the Church of Rome kind of arguing over whether you should eat this or whether you should celebrate this day or that day. But still, the application is a general and a broad understanding that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. When we got here last Lord's Day, I thought that perhaps it would be wise to take a a little time to just kind of understand what this thing called faith is. Because if you're if you're sinning, because if you're you're not doing something according to faith, if that's what sin is, what is faith? What is this thing called faith? We talk about it all the time. And that's why we went last Lord's Day to look at what we called faith the description of faith. And that was from Hebrews 11, verse 1, really, when we saw in Hebrews 11, verse 1, that it is the assurance of things hoped for. We believe what God has said in the Scriptures. We have assurance that this is true. And we have every bit of confidence that it is going to come to pass, as he says, it is the conviction of things not seen. We don't see Jesus, we don't see God, we don't see heaven, but we are convicted that all that God has given to us in the Scriptures is true. And we are convicted not just because of the theory, oh yeah, I believe in God, but we're convicted because of the testimony of the Word of God, what we find in the Scriptures. That's why it's so important to go by what the Bible says and not by stories or by what men make up. Go by what the Bible teaches. That's where faith comes from. Now, I left off with that last week, and I promised this week that I would tell you how one obtains that faith. If that's what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and we are absolutely committed to that, well, how does one obtain faith? Where does faith come from? So, We have the description of faith, and now I want for us to look at what we would call the provision of faith. So take your Bibles now, if you would please, and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. As we consider together the provision of faith. 
As we begin a look at this text today, I would like to remind you all of one of the greatest, most popular, best-selling books of all time called Pilgrim's Progress. Now, for this generation, many of you may not have even heard of it. But believe it or not, not too long ago, it was required reading in schools. And everybody read it. And everybody knew about it. As I said, it is to this day the, one of the best-selling books of all time. Still, Pilgrim's Progress. Written by John Bunyan when he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And Bunyan paints this wonderful picture of a man on his pilgrimage to faith. How he begins as one who was lost and he came to know of his lostness from reading the scriptures. And as he read the scriptures and learned of his lostness, he became aware of a great burden. A great burden that was on top of him. A great weight oppressing him. A great burden of his sin. And this is a picture depicting pilgrim whose name was Christian and the great burden of his sin. You will notice that he's reading the scriptures and he then has this burden on his back, this horrible, ugly weight of sin, which is this burden and he cannot get rid of it. There's nothing he can do to get it off of his back. It's there, oppressing him, pressing in on him. And there's no relief. Even his wife doesn't understand it. You see, they don't see it. They don't know about it. Non-Christians don't get the weight of the burden of sin. They don't feel it. They don't know it. But when God is dealing with a man, when God is dealing with a woman, when God is dealing with a boy or a girl, the first thing he does is to show them that they are sinners before him. And they begin to feel this great burden of their sin. And one of the texts that will show you that burden is the one before you in Ephesians chapter 2. As we read in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived, in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, a text like that shows you 
how sinful you are. This text is what we call a specimen text. It is a text that is a standard by which one's theology may be measured. Do you think you're okay? Do you think you're good? Just need to be cleaned up a little bit? Do you think that when you stand before God, you will be able to plead your good works to Him and say, I'm a good guy, let me in? And you don't know the weight of the burden of sin that comes from a text like this that says that you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. It is a specimen text. Now let me just say as I begin, this passage contains such rich truths that one of my pastors preached on this passage for a year, if not more. Needless to say, in our current series, I'm not going to do that. Maybe I will someday, but today I can't do that. And so what I want to accomplish for us is to do what we would call a quick flyover. This is a kind of quick flyover and glean the highlights of this text. Now, first, we see in verses 1 through 3, the sinful nature of us all. The sinful nature of us all. As he says in the first part of verse 1, that you were dead. Notice it says you. You were dead. Don't look at your sister. Don't look at your brother. Your husband or your wife. You were dead. Now what does it mean to be dead? Now obviously he wasn't talking physical death. So when we speak of this death or deadness, it is spiritually speaking. But still, what is eternity? Spiritual. Which lasts longer, the flesh in this life or eternity, which is the supernatural, the glorification, which lasts longer, eternity does. So which is more important? Just because it is not speaking physical death, don't think that it isn't that big of a deal, because it is. He says, you are dead. That's not a good thing, is it? When is it ever good to be dead? It isn't good physically and it isn't good spiritually. But he says that you were dead. It's not a good condition. He's not saying that you were sick. You're not saying you were mostly dead. Not saying you're kind of dead. There's no such thing. You're dead. Dead is a place where you can do nothing. Dead is a doornail. Unable to do anything that will impress God. Unable to do anything that will bring you into the good graces of God. You're dead. I told you my neighbor thinks she's going to go to heaven because she goes around doing good stuff. What 
good stuff can a dead person do? Nothing. A dead man cannot do anything, let alone anything good. A dead man is dead. We often use the illustration, or there are several illustrations. The one, one of the ones I like the most is you come to the uh, uh, kind of the brink of the lake or the edge of a river, and you look in, and, well, there's a dead body under there. So you maybe get a stick, and you poke it. What does it do? Nothing. It's dead. You throw it a lifeline. Come on, buddy. Get up. Get up. What does it do? Nothing. Why? It's dead. Dead men do nothing. Dead men don't reach out to God. Dead men don't respond to God. Dead men are dead. Dead men are dead men. And he says to them right here in the very beginning, you are dead. That is why Bunyan pictured pilgrim or Christian with such a heavy burden, with such a heavy weight and a horrible and ugly weight because he was dead. And what was he dead in? What was the substance of the weight? Your trespasses and sins. He's dead in his trespasses and his sins, and that is the burden on his back. That is the burden of his sin. He goes on to then describe them. If you would please look at verse 2 in your Bibles, in which you all formerly walked according to, to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's painting the picture of men following Satan, the prince of the world. You know, there are no other options but these two. You are either following the prince of the world, Satan, or you are following God. You're following God in accordance to his word, or you are following the prince of this world, Satan. And here's where a lot of people go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. I may not be religious. I may not go to church all the time. I may not understand all this God stuff, but I am certainly not following Satan. I am not a Satan worshiper. Yes, you are. If you are not a God worshiper, you are a Satan worshiper. Worshipper, a Satan follower. Now, you may not go down to the local coven and engage in rituals, but according to the Bible, you are either of God, the Father, and a follower of Him, or you are of your father, the devil. Those are the only options. One is good, and one is not. One is good, and one is very bad. Now we, we must continue on. Look at verse 3 now. Among them, we too all formerly walked according to the lusts of the flesh, 
indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby nature, children of wrath. We are in it for ourselves and everything that we could get, lusting, coveting, doing all that we could to get what we could. You know what? He says it was by your nature, your nature, your sinful nature. What do we have people doing today? Today we have people saying, oh, I was raised in a bad home. It's not my fault. I I didn't have all of the privileges or uh, all of the understanding of good parents who loved me and cared for me. See, that's why I'm a bad person. Or they say, it's society. Man, society's getting so bad and things are getting so wicked all around. That's, that's why I'm so bad. Look at what's going on in all of these riots. Nobody's taking accountability for their own actions. Just because somebody may break the law, maybe somebody does something bad, doesn't mean you have to go and break into a store and loot or set fire or kill or anything else. Don't blame society. It is sinful nature. Men are sinners by nature. You've heard me say this a dozen times at least. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. It's what we are by nature. Children of wrath. Like I said, I've got to fly low. I can't deal too much more with this. But I want to turn, I want to ask you to turn with me to another passage. Put a marker here because we're going to come back and look at the rest of this passage. But I want to ask you to turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. The sinful nature of us all. Let's see the sinfulness of us all. Romans chapter 3, another specimen text regarding sin. It's page 120 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 3. Many of you who know your Bibles realize that the Apostle Paul takes the first almost three chapters of the book of Romans to tell men that they are lost and they need to be saved. I've taken about six weeks, and we're not done yet. I want you all to be lost so that you know you need to be saved. And those of you who are saved, I want you to know what marvelous grace God has wrought in your lives. But here is the culmination, or at least the crescendo, of what the Apostle Paul has been giving to these the church of Rome in these first three chapters. And he says in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. You tell me which one of us here today is righteous on his own. There's none righteous. Not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Amazing, isn't it? We have a culture today in churches where they have what are called seeker services. Why we want to put on a good show for people who are seeking God to make them feel comfortable and loved and happy. So we have a seeker service. We don't do that. I want you to be uncomfortable and miserable until you are settled in Christ. So I'm telling you, you are not seeking for God. Nobody seeks for God unless God does something first. That's what we're going to see in a minute. But there is none righteous, not one. Nobody's seeking for God. The world isn't out there waiting for you to come and tell them about Jesus. Go tell that to uh, the uh, ISIL people. Hey, you know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They're not seeking for God. They're sinners. They're unrighteous. They're lost. There is none who understand All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. None. Dead people can't do good. Dead people can't do anything. But we have a whole culture of church who thinks they're going to go to heaven because they're good. And yet the Bible says there's none good. So what would the outcome of that be? No one's going to heaven. On their own. No one's going to heaven. By themselves. Dead people are not doing good works. He goes on to say, that their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear the judgment of God. So why should they be saved? Why would they seek God if they don't even fear him? Now, if you would, please go back to Ephesians chapter 2. That is the burden. That is the weight. That is what was upon Christians' back. And he went running from his city and from his family because God was dealing with him. And he had to do something to get rid of the burden of sin that was upon him. Now, how does that happen? What happens? All right. We have seen the sinful nature of us all. We have seen the sinfulness of us all. And now, in contrast, let's see the marvelous grace of God. God. If you're in Ephesians chapter 2, look down to verse 4 and we see these first two words that are so wonderful to hear. You're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You're lost. But God. But God. 
as he says, being rich in mercy because of his grace, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Do you get it? Do you see? You're dead and you can't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to appease God. But rather God, in His grace and His mercy, reaches down to you that dead man in the lake, that dead man in the river, and he reaches down and he plucks you up and he makes you alive. Nobody can do that. Only God. But God. But God. He is the one who is able to make dead men to live. He does it. And it's not out of obligation. It's not like you were somehow worthy. It's because, as the text says, of His love and mercy. You see, if you earned salvation... It wouldn't be his love and his mercy. He'd be obligated. But you are not worthy. I am not worthy. We are all dead in our transgressions and in our sins. But out of his love, out of his mercy, out of his grace, he makes you to be alive. Look what he says again in verse 5 in the first part. Even when you were dead and helpless. Even when you were dead. He makes you to be, as he goes on to say, alive. Alive. How is it that God can take dead, lost sinners? Let's just use that dead thing again dead in your transgressions and in your sins. How can God take dead men and make them alive? You see, this is a picture of creation and recreation. Only God can create the earth and all that is in it. Only God can create man in his image. And only God can take a dead, lost sinner and make him to be alive. I don't care what Mary Shelley said. Dr. Frankenstein doesn't exist. It's a, a fairy tale. It is a novel. Only God can make the dead to live. And he does every day. Every day he takes lost sinful men and women, lost sinful boys and girls, and out of his love takes them, 
brings them into His arms and saves them by His grace. That's salvation. That's what God does. He makes us alive. And notice that He says it is in Christ. Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Together with Christ. Christ is the first fruits, right? Christ gave his life on the cross. He was dead, buried in the tomb. But on the third day he rose again from the dead. You were dead. And one day, for many of you, Christ called you by name as he did Lazarus. And you, who were once dead, became alive. In Christ. In Christ. Then he also goes on to speak about the whole matter, not only of his marvelous grace, but he gives us then this Place of honor, verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to them as if it had already happened. It's that certain. Heaven is yours if you're saved by the grace of God. It's what you can expect. Remember that faith? It's what we are assured of. It's what we're confident of. That we will be in the heavenly places with Christ. That in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Or in Christ Jesus. For all eternity. For all eternity will be with Him for all eternity in glory with Christ. This is the promise. And this is what happens when God redeems someone by His grace. The burden is removed. And the sinner is excited and joyful. Because no more does he have this burden of sin on his back. It's released and he's set free because of the grace of God has removed it and made him alive in Christ. Isn't that neat? Salvation by grace. The grace of God. He can take away your burden of sin. He can take away your burden of sin and set you free. Free from sin and free from the pending judgment of God for your sin as you are now made righteous with Christ, the text says, you become as righteous as Christ. That's what God does in his grace and in his mercy. Look at verse uh, six again, as he says that you will be raised up and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. 
I just want to make sure you understand that only those who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ will be those who go to heaven. If you do not have the grace of Christ, you're that. If you do have the grace of Christ, you're set free from the burden of sin, and only those who are will go to heaven to have that place of honor. God is the only one who can do it. God is the only one who can take a dead man and make him to live. It is his work of recreation, taking dead men to make them live. So now I want to find one other thing in this text, and that was as advertised, where this faith comes from. Let's look on now, beginning in verse 8. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, once you are saved, that's when you can do good works. But you have this wonderful gift given to you, this wonderful thing called in the text, faith. As he says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Here's where we get that faith. It is a gift. Of God. You on your own can never manufacture faith in God. You can't do it. You're dead, remember? That's still the context. One without Christ is dead in his sins and trespasses, and he does not, cannot, will not have faith. But when God reaches down and pulls that guy out of the tomb and makes him alive at that very instant, he gives him not only the righteousness of Christ, but faith. Faith to believe. Faith to believe that God is God, that Jesus is Jesus, the Son of God, and the Savior, faith to believe the Scriptures, a desire to grow in love and understanding of the Scriptures. You see, God gives you faith. Some people say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you have to have faith to respond to God? Dead men can't respond to God. There's a big debate about this. And I would say, quite honestly, the only reason there's a debate about this is because people don't want to believe what the Bible says. The Bible clearly says that faith is a gift from God. But other people go, no, 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 wait. You have to have faith first so that you can reach out to God. Dead man, don't reach out to God. Look at the text. That's why it's a specimen text. We go by what the Bible says. And the Bible says you are not saved by your works, even by your faith. You're saved by grace. And God then gives you 
faith. What a marvelous, wonderful thing that God gives us faith. Now, I would say that it may seem that it's at the exact same moment, (laughs) and it may seem that way, but the reality is, according to the Bible, faith is a gift from God, and salvation precedes faith. You're saved, and then God gives you faith. Right then, right then, split second, right then. But you're saved, and God gives you faith. That's where faith comes from. So I can't coerce you into believing. I can't twist your arm hard enough to get you to believe. One of the reasons we don't give invitations here. You don't need to have your arm twisted by a preacher to come forward. I would love to have you come forward. Talk to me about salvation. Any of the men here in this church would love to have you come and to ask and to inquire and to find out about Christ and salvation. But I'm not going to sit here and say, well, if you don't come forward, then you're just evil and the devil's got a hold of you. You better come up or I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Jesus raised two hands for you. Aren't you man enough to raise one for him? I'm not going to do it. But God does, by the power of the Holy Spirit, draw men to himself. He uses the scriptures to pierce their hearts and saves them. And it's passages like this that he uses to give men a burden of their sin so that they would seek and long to know, how can I get rid of this burden? I can't do that in you. God has to do that in you. I had many of you know, and he'd actually come to this church once years ago. The man that perhaps more than any other in my Christian life and walk is a pastor that I just really love. I love being with him. I love being around him. And I loved hearing him tell me about what it was like when he was a preacher. He's been dead for about 10 years now or more. And he was a little older than I am, so he went back into the 1950s and 60s as a preacher. His name is R.F. Gates. And R.F. told me, and he actually told the congregation that I was pastoring, of an account where he went to a church, and it was in Oklahoma. And this was probably in the maybe late 50s, maybe early 60s. And he met a man in this church who was a deacon. Now, the deacon was maybe in his 80s. And the deacon's name was Jim. And R.F. loved being with this man. He loved Jesus. They loved talking about the scriptures. And R.F. just got a real kind of sense of of love and, and, and enjoyment of being around this guy. And so one day he said to him, Jim... Tell me how it is you got such a great case of faith. How did you come to be such a solid, loving Christian and have great faith? And Jim went back to tell RF that years before, which would have been back maybe in the 30s, 
there in a small oak rural town in Oklahoma. Jim used to go to a, a church not very often, but he met a little girl. They fell in love, and he married her. And Jim even said, that girl should never have married me. I was lost. But they got married. And Jim would start to go to church with his wife every now and then. One Sunday, he was going to church with his uh, wife in this small little rural town. And this preacher was a fireball preacher. He's preaching the truth of God. And, and Jim said, you know what, preacher? He came forward after meeting. He said, you know what, preacher? I think I want to be saved. I want to be saved, preacher. And the preacher said to Jim, not yet. You ain't ready. You ain't ready yet, Jim. And Jim was so mad. How dare that preacher tell me I come up there to get saved. And he said, I'm not ready. And he, he said, he told RF, I stormed out of there. I was so mad. So Jim stormed out. He was so mad. He didn't go to church for a long time. He didn't go to church. He didn't want to go because he got bent out of shape on what the preacher said. But the preacher was right, wasn't he? So after a little while, he started going back. He went back to church again with his little wife. By now, I think they had a kid. So he went back to the church. And once again, the preacher is preaching. And after a couple of weeks, Jim comes forward and says, Preacher, preacher, I want to be saved. The preacher looks at him and goes, Jim, not yet. You ain't ready yet, Jim. And this time, Jim didn't get all bent out of shape. RF says that he told him he just hung his head and kind of sighed a little bit and humbly went off. Well, a little while later, he comes back to church. He's coming to church again, regularly coming to church. The preacher is preaching from the word of God, and this happens. He feels the burden of his sin, and he comes forward. He goes, preacher, preacher, I got to be saved. The preacher looks at him and says, Jim, I'll tell you what. Let's have lunch today. I'll go over to your house with your wife and children, and you follow on in your buggy, his horse and buggy. So the preacher leaves with the family and heads out to Jim's house. And they get there first. But now Jim comes later on in his buggy. And Jim said to RF, he said, this is what was happening. I'm riding down the road on the dirt road in my buggy. And the wheels are turning and squeaking. And every time they turn, they're going, lost, 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 lost. And he stopped the buggy in the middle of the road and got out of the buggy in the dirt and cried out to God for mercy. And he stayed there in the road and prayed and asked God to save him. He got back in the buggy and went on home, filled with the joy of Christ. And he pulls up into his own driveway, and there, standing on the porch, is the preacher. And he goes, now, Jim, now. And that's how Jim got a good case of faith. I hope that for some of you, 
You will be driving down the road, and the radio will be playing, but you won't hear what's being said. You'll hear lost, 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 dead in my sins and my trespasses. And you'll have to pull that car over and cry out to God for mercy. And God, in His mercy, and by His grace, will make a dead man to live. A dead woman, a dead boy or girl. Only God can make you to live. And praise God, He does. Now I assure you that because a man is saved, he does not become sinless. So next week we're going back to Romans 14 to see the end of that whole thing, that even those of us who love God and know better are still prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. But He never leaves us. For once you are genuinely saved by grace, there's no turning back. That's how Jim could relate that account to R.F. All those years later, because he never turned back. I pray that some of you would look back upon these days and perhaps even this day, and that God will give you the burden of sin until you are free from that burden by his grace and mercy in salvation through Christ. Let's pray. Oh, God, have dealings with the hearts of people in this church today. Use your word. Use your spirit. Come with power and draw men to yourself, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.